This week's episode is sponsored by Spaces. Spaces is a new platform backed by 15 plus years of educator feedback designed to document the process and progress behind student learning in your classroom. Join the Spaces community to connect with educators across North America and gain access to free teacher-created resources, help educators who are just starting out on their journey, and learn new things from teachers who have been there before. So visit community.spacesedu.com today. Uh, is this the teacher hotline? Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Ronald Tay, and welcome back to the Teacher Hotline, where we try to answer some of the most pressing questions for teachers in and outside of the classroom. This week, we are continuing our conversation on investing with Andrew Hellum, a world-renowned personal finance author. Last week, Barbour kicked off the conversation with a very thoughtful question, so let's take a second to revisit his question before we pick up the conversation with where we left off. Hey, Ron. I'm a 34-year-old teacher who's been teaching for seven years. I love your financial literacy episodes for teachers so far. Since you're a business teacher, love to get your take on how to best construct a financial portfolio. With where the economy is currently at and where things are headed, what's your thoughts on the best asset allocation? Uh, bond yields are at all-time lows, but the stock market seems overpriced. I also keep hearing about another stock market crash. If you have time on the segment, love to hear your thoughts on more risk or investments like cryptocurrencies and cannabis stock. Andrew, thank you again so much for hopping on another episode this week with us. So I want to go back to our conversation from last week. Going back to kind of the, your, your average investors or investors that are just starting out. I have another friend, uh, Corey. He was actually on episode number two when we started this podcast. And he recently came up to me and uh, he just transferred all his money from your typical bank that we talked about earlier. He's realizing that the fees are getting a little bit too high and he's moving it to a Wealth Simple trade account. And just literally less than a week ago, he asked me, Ron, now that I'm managing my own money, I don't even know where to begin. Like, what do I even buy as like a core holding? So are there any, perhaps any index funds or ETFs that you would perhaps get investors starting out to at least start looking at as a, perhaps a core holding, uh, some sort of S&P 500 ETF or a, a TSX ETF, or even a, a European or Asian ETF that people should have in their portfolio? I'm a huge fan of having one ETF mm. and that one ETF would be an all-in-one portfolio, just like your friend, Jake. Okay. So there are a couple of reasons for this. One is that we often experience paralysis by analysis when we see a wide variety of different things to choose from, and we're trying to figure out what we're going to buy. As a result of that, we often end up sitting on the sidelines and not actually getting our butt in gear and investing. An all-in-one portfolio ETF takes that out problem out of the equation. It's diversified. It rebalances every year by the fund company. And when I say it rebalances, so let's take Jake's fund. 
Jake's fund is 60% stocks, 40% bonds. When the stock market drops, and we'll always have periods where the stock market drops, but when it drops, what Vanguard will do is Vanguard will sell some of the bond allocation and add the proceeds to the falling stock allocation, not so that they're predicting anything or not, they're not trying to be opportunistic, but they're just trying to maintain a consistent allocation, 60% stocks, 40% bonds. So if you had 60-40 and the stock market crashed hard, you might wake up and find, wow, I don't have 60 in stocks and 40 in bonds anymore. You might have, uh, shoot, 40% in stocks and 60% in bonds because your stock allocation dropped so far. At that point, the average investor knows they should rebalance back to their original allocation, but they can't mentally do it. They try and time the market thinking it's not the right time. Jake doesn't have to worry about that. Jake just goes off to work. Vanguard ensures that that portfolio that he has within his single ETF maintains a 60% stock allocation, 40% bond allocation, no matter what the markets do. So in essence, Jake is being a little bit greedy when others are fearful and fearful when others are greedy just by letting Vanguard rebalance back to the original allocation. So there's another third element to this, and it's that research has suggested, Ron, that people that buy all-in-one ETFs behave better. They actually earn much higher returns than investors who buy individual stock market ETFs. And if you want, for your show notes, I can actually link to some research, some articles that I've written based on uh, research suggesting this. So I'm a huge fan. Don't even bother with individual ETFs. If you're listening to me right now, an all-in-one ETF, uh, I can put some article links in, in Ron's show notes uh, that will give you some ideas of some products that you could buy. Yeah, that's a, that's a great because uh, you know what um, I, I know we talked about V Ball as as one of them. I'd uh, love to kind of take a look at some uh, some other examples of all in one ETFs. Now let's hypothetically say that there are some listeners out there and they're saying, you know what, I'm not buying what Andrew's selling right now. You know what, I want to be a little bit more aggressive with my with my approach. The whole sixty forty split or or leaving it to um, some of these funds to determine my asset allocation. I'm not about that. So let's talk about then an investor that wants to buy, let's say, you know, their own equity ETFs and then buy their bond ETFs kind of separately here. So bonds, I know, could be a, a tricky subject. Uh, I know it's, it's, it's easy to understand in concept, but in terms of how things move can be a little bit more complicated. So what type of bonds should teachers be considering if they're constructing their own portfolio from scratch mm -hmm. in their portfolio? Because we, we, there's so many out there, right? We got yeah. <laughs> ag aggregate bond ETFs, corporate bond ETFs, short-term, long-term bond ETFs. And a lot of this product could be very overwhelming. And again, going back to your old message, maybe it's just you know easier to just buy an all-in-one. But if someone that's out there just trying to learn kind of just the different products out there, um, what do you think is probably best for... Uh, Again, maybe using the wrong terminology here in this environment, which I know we've been trying to stay away from. Uh, but love to just hear your thoughts on that. One of the things that people are going to be tempted to do is they're going to be tempted to look at what bond ETF, for example, 
has beaten the rest. So they'll invest based on looking through the rear view mirror. And that's what, that's what almost everybody will do. Almost everybody will do that. And so they'll pick a bond ETF that's done well without understanding the concept of reversion to the mean. In most cases, you'll see long-term bond ETFs have actually better five, 10-year returns historically. But, but we can't use present tense when we talk about how something is performing. You can't say anything is performing well right now. That's one of my pet peeves. It's one of the things I try to help people with. Well, this is performing really well right now. That is performing really well right now. No, no, no. Nothing performs well right now. It only performed well right now. Right? From this point forward is the future. There's no such thing as performing well. There is only always performed well, right? So mm -hmm. that's something that people have to keep in mind. There are high risks associated with going for those high yielding products, like say a long-term bond market index. Because if inflation ends up rising, we have to increase, the Bank of Canada has to increase interest rates. So new bonds will end up having higher interest rates associated with them. But if you're stuck with a long-term bond ETF, the terms on those internal bonds are going to be 10, 20, 30 years into the future. So those internal components would be locked in at interest rates that might be internally 2, 3, 3.5%. If inflation ends up running 6 or 7%, in the future, your long-term bond ETF could lose to a box of Cheerios. So we don't want that. That's a higher risk than we want to take. So that's why it's better to go with a, a broad bond market ETF, which would contain mostly intermediate bonds and short-term bonds. If you want to be really conservative, a short-term bond market ETF. So the bonds, they rotate quickly. They're in and out. So they might be one to three-year maturity terms within them. So when a one-year bond within that ETF expires, it picks up another one-year bond. So if interest rates have risen during that one-year period, it picks up a new bond at a higher interest rate. This is how you give yourself the best odds of actually beating inflation with your bond market index is to make sure that you keep your terms relatively low. So with a broad bond market index or even more conservative with a short-term government bond market index. Other people will reach for higher yield by getting corporate bond ETFs. So corporate bonds end up paying uh, higher interest rates, but you're taking a higher risk to do that. So... If a corporation defaults on that loan, you know, that's something that you're going to have to eat as an investor. Likewise, junk bonds. So they'd be corporate bonds that are, that are, that, that are, they incorporate companies that are a little bit shaky financially. They'll offer really high interest rates. And so, but unfortunately, as a result, their odds of going bankrupt are high too. So if you want the higher odds of returns, don't try and do it with your bonds. If you want that, reduce your bond allocation and increase your stock allocation. Don't try and look for higher yields of bonds because it's a uh, it's a fruitless activity. Is that a word? Fruitless sounds. Yeah, I think that's a word. I'm not an English teacher. You're you're the English teacher. I here. know, and yeah. I'm making up. No, it's, a, it's a fruity endeavor. So if you English want, high, yeah, you want to take Eng higher risk, higher returns, increase your stock allocation and reduce your bond allocation. I love how the enough. English teacher is asking the accounting teacher for, for words. <laughs> <Yeah. here. laughs>
<laughs> Andrew, I'm not your guy. Uh, <laughs> so, Andrew, another common question I always get is, how much cash should investors be holding on at all times? Yeah, that's a good question because, you know, when people used to ask me that question and I would tell them, and I, and I give a lot of talks, as you, as you mentioned in the introduction. So I give these, these big seminars and people will always ask me that question. Well, how much cash should I have in my savings account? And I would tell people, you know, good rule of thumb is to have three to six months worth of living expenses in cash that's just available to you in the case of emergencies. And so many people, so many people balked at that. No one boxes at that today. I mean, <laughs> with that might not even be enough to be honest with you. Three to six well, months. Well, that's it. I mean, yeah, it's uh, it's just it's just really important to recognize that nothing in life is ever certain, and it never has been. So COVID was different. Yeah, yeah, COVID was different, but so was World War Two, right? That was yeah. different too. So I mean, just the idea that. Anything can happen. We we can end up with runaway uh, we runaway unemployment rates, um, and it's just nice to know that if you end up losing your job or you need a new roof, you know you're not going to have to borrow money to fix your roof because you've put everything in your RRSP or in your TFSA tax free savings account, which is potentially if you connect it with a bunch of ETFs. Uh, you could have to sell potentially at a loss if the market drops and you need that money for a new roof. So you're either selling at a low to pay for your roof or you're borrowing money to pay for your roof. So things like that, I think are really important. Remembering that nothing in life is ever certain. So yeah, keeping six months worth of living expenses uh, is a pretty good idea, I think. I want to switch gears just for a second. I want to ask you a, the same question I asked another guest from a couple weeks ago on our episode on teacher's pension plan. And one question that gets commonly brought up is the RRSP. And teachers who have, let's say in Ontario, who have a defined benefit plan, they always ask, well, should I be then investing in my RRSP or perhaps tone down the aggressiveness in terms of how much I save in the RSP because I am now getting this pension income in my in my retirement. What are your thoughts on RSP investments and how aggressive people should be saving and investing if they do have that defined benefit plan? I think, again, coming back to uncertainty. So when I was a teacher in British Columbia, and so part of the BC Teachers Federation, we had a really great pension. I could have said to myself, you know, I'm not going to invest a lot of money because I don't need to, because the British Columbia teachers' pension is super solid. And it is. But life changed for me. And I decided that I would teach overseas. And so, based on that, had I have decided that I really wasn't going to invest a lot of money, I may have found myself in a tricky situation when I ended up leaving British Columbia. And I think there's that element in Ontario where you don't really know for sure whether you're going to continue to work your entire career in Ontario and receive a fabulous pension at the end of the day. So it's kind of nice just to, again, it's a form of diversification, is diversifying your assets. So one, of course, is the pension, which is wonderful. But then two, I think adding money to your investment portfolio 
is a, is a great idea. And especially for teachers, maxing out that TFSA first, because when you guys retire, likely it's likely that you're going to be in the same tax bracket when you retire that you're in right now or pretty darn close. So when you're withdrawing, every penny of your RSP is going to be taxed at your marginal tax rate. And so that's one of those things, although it compounds capital gains free, it's not as beneficial for school teachers who have this, especially those who have put in a full career and end up establishing um, themselves with a fabulous pension at the end of the day. Now, a lot of teachers out there might be starting this episode and with the intention of learning a lot and then realizing, oh my God, this conversation is going too quick and going way over my head. You know what? I think I'm just going to go find someone like a financial advisor to help me manage my money for me. And you know what? At the end of the day, people will decide that that's the best route for them. How much does that actually cost? Because to be honest with you, I've always been a big proponent of just managing my own money. So I've never really looked into how much a financial advisor would cost. So I'm not sure if you would know, because it sounds like you, I don't know, I kind of have the hunch that you manage your own money, Andrew. (laughs) Um, So how much do you know how the fee structure works? And number two, how much does it cost to kind of get someone to help you to to do this planning? Yeah, you know, I like to look at it in large absolute terms. So what does it cost somebody to have a financial advisor with, let's say, uh, let's pick on uh, CIBC. (laughs) (laughs) what does it what does it cost them over their lifetime well i'm going to say that let's assume it's somebody who saves and invests a a good saver let's say thousand dollars a month i'm going to guess that over their lifetime the cost of that financial advisor for that person will be somewhere around five hundred thousand dollars and so how do i come up with that number you might say well that that's stupid I don't pay my financial advisor anything, Ah, but you do. (laughs) If you go in and you buy actively managed funds through CIBC, you're going to be paying management expense ratios on your funds of about, let's say, 2.2 to 2.4% per year. Now, it doesn't seem like a lot. However, if we compound money over time, and let's say your friend Jake earns, let's say a diversified investment portfolio without fees, earns, let's just say 10%. Well, your friend Jake, who has that all-in-one Vanguard portfolio ETF, Jake pays a really small fee on that. If the markets or a globally diversified portfolio of ETFs ends up making 10% before fees, Jake's going to end up making something like 9.85% per year. Jake's sister, Emily, goes into CIBC and buys a basket of actively managed mutual funds through an advisor. Well, the global stock and bond market allocation, let's say, make 10% during that time period, much as it would have with Jake. But now we subtract 2.5%. So Jake's sister, Emily, would earn a return of about 7.5% instead of 9.85%. Now, Remember, it'll be the rate of return minus the fees paid. So where do I get this crazy $500,000? If you take a compound interest calculator and you plug in that somebody is putting in $1,000 a month and that they make 7.5% per year for a working lifetime, 
and then you compare that to someone who makes 9.85% over a working lifetime, you are going to see a difference of about half a million dollars. And so this is why feasibly that decision of Emily to go into CIBC and let them buy her active managed funds versus her brother, Jake, uh, it's probably about a $500,000 decision. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't have a financial advisor because they can be so helpful on so many different aspects. It all depends on what type of financial advisor. So whatever you do, the last thing you want to do is you do not want to go into a bank and ask them, just ask them, please set me up with a financial advisor. <laughs> I want to invest with my, for my future. Uh, for two reasons. One is that the bank makes money. The bank isn't a charitable organization. Right? So they make money based on fees charged for services and products. So they are not going to get you into low-cost products. Even if it's your best friend, Julie, and Julie gets a job at the bank, Julie isn't really trained, even if she has a certified, even if she's a certified financial planner, which is the highest level of certification. Most people that work at the bank are not CFPs. They're not. Go into the bank and check. They'll be like, their little cards will say investment representative. And they'll, they're, all, they're all calling themselves presidents too. Everybody's a president. <laughs> <right>? <laughs> but a CFP is the highest designation and you'll get almost none of those people at your bank accredited with a CFP. But even the CFP training stands for Certified Financial Planning. As rigorous as their training is, and it's, tr it's rigorous on all kinds of different aspects of financial services, they are not trained to know a couple of things. One, the concept of reversion to a mean. So that which does well during one time period usually does poorly to the next. And they're not trained to know that the highest statistical odds of success are with low fee funds and not high fee funds. So they don't typically know that. Um, what I can do is I can actually give you proof of this in your show notes if you're interested. Please. Another story that I wrote for the Golden Mail. It was a study it. done in Canada on thousands of financial advisors to see what do they actually own? What do they own? And how did they do relative to uh, an equal risk-adjusted portfolio of ETFs like Jake's? Yeah. They, ter they did terrible. Ron, they did terrible. They, they underperformed by about 3 to 3.5% per year what someone like Jake would perform. So not only do they do that badly with their clients' money, but they do that badly with their own money. And so they're just not trained to know this. So like when you go to school to become a teacher, your training is like five years. Yeah. The, the CFP is not a five-year thing. <laughs> it's just not. You know, it's, if, you, if you study hard, you can't. It's a tough exam, but if you study hard from the beginning, you can complete all of the training, get the qualifications. You can do it in about six months. So it's not, it's not like a vet. It's not like a doctor. It's not yeah. like a teacher. But because the average person also has fairly low level of financial literacy, someone at the bank who has even just a two-week course, and I've seen this, where they take a two-week security course. It's like a mutual fund licensing course to sell yeah. mutual funds at the bank. And honestly, most of them just have a two- or three-week course. That's all yeah. they have. That's wild. Um, they know more than the average Canadian because we don't learn this stuff in school. And so that's what's crazy. You could be in there, you know, this is an important thing. It's your life. And you're taking an advice from someone who might have three-week course under their belt. It's funny that, uh, you know, you just, real, the average person kind of just believes what someone says if you just wear a suit and tie eh? and just sit behind a desk <laughs> and it has a, a business card that says president on it. <laughs> yeah. 
It really is unbelievable. Um, I want to close out the show by talking about a couple of alternative investments, hot topic uh, subjects. Love to get your opinion on. Uh, Let's talk about gold. Uh, You talk about gold in your book, Millionaire Teacher. Uh, And in your book, you mentioned that gold is not an investment and that my fourth year uh, finance prof actually felt the same way. Uh, Wondering if you could just elaborate uh, on what you mean by gold is not investment to our listeners. Yeah, long term. Gold, uh, long term, it's, it's done about as well as inflation. So when something does as well as inflation, it does about as well as a chocolate bar. So I don't know if you froze a chocolate bar and in your freezer and you, let's say you pay a dollar for it and it's an awesome special type of freezer and you could pull that chocolate bar out, I don't know, 20 years later. Well, now chocolate bars, let's say instead of them being priced at a dollar, they're priced at I don't know, $4. So you could feasibly sell that chocolate bar for four bucks. Have you made money? (laughs) No, you've tracked inflation. Bonds or gold long-term attract inflation. So I'm going to give you a really dramatic example. Take a dollar worth, let's say we were to look at the U.S. stock market as an example from 1801 to 2021. If somebody earned the return of the US stock market during that 220 years with $1, that $1 would have grown to $28 million. Oh my God. That's a compound annual return of, doesn't sound that exciting, 8.1%. Wow. Now, a dollar worth of gold in 1801. By 2021, your investors ready for this? Are your listeners ready for this? I, I'm listening. $101. Get out of here. $101. Get out of here, Andrew. <laughs> Get out of here, Andrew. Really? hundred? That's it? That's it. Yeah. I mean, it's still 100 times its original value. However, um, yeah. it's about max inflation. Yeah. Actually, it's actually done a little bit worse than inflation. The, the thing about gold, though, is it, at times it's a speculators and doomsayers love it. Uh, speculators love it because at times, I mean, it actually is more volatile than stocks. A lot of people think the layperson often thinks gold's stable. Price of gold. Well, no, gold's not. <laughs> gold's not stable. Are you kidding me? Gold is crazy. Gold is like the ultimate Mexican jumping beat on speed. I mean, it jumps around like crazy. Uh, right. It has more losing years historically than stocks do. Right. And it often crashes really, really hard. I think in, you know, after it hit a peak in 1980 or 1981, I think it was almost 30 years before it actually reached that same level again. Um, mm. After inflation, it was, it, was, it was closer to 37 or 38 or even 40 years. So no gold's gold's not uh, gold's not an investment. What about housing? Is housing an investment? Because I hear some people say housing it is an investment. Some people are like, no, housing is not an investment. You got to live in it, and then when you do sell yeah. it, you got to put the money into another house. So never actually <laughs> getting the money and capital gains. Uh, your opinion: housing investment or not investment? Uh, both people are right, and and here's why. First of all, the house you own is not an investment, and so many people are like, oh, the house, my house is my best investment. It's, 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 it's tripled in value or doubled in value, gone up 50% or whatever. Okay, so you live in it though, right? 
yeah. And so if you sell it, what are you going to do? Uh, I guess to buy the house across the street. Oh, but if you buy the house across the street, you have to buy that at a premium too. So you haven't really made any money. Um, housing, if it's your resident, and this is really hardcore, but it's just, it's, we need to be hardcore about this. We need to be truthful. We can't live in la-la land. Your residence is not an investment. Not unless you live in Toronto and then you plan at age 65 to sell it and to move to Ecuador and buy a house there, <laughs> right? It's not an investment. It's not. Um, your second house, however, that's an investment because that's future cash flow. So you're putting down payment there. Uh, you're going to get renters. They're going to be paying for the property, hopefully paying for the mortgage. Um, and that can appreciate and you're going to get cash flow. So that's an investment. But your primary residence is not an investment. Do you think there's anything wrong with renting? Because I know right now people can't afford to buy a house with housing prices. I don't know if you've been keeping track of Canadian household prices because I know you're in New Jersey right now. I don't know where you've kind of been, but uh, it's it's almost near impossible to, to buy a house here. Is, uh, is, it, is there a problem with renting, you think? There's nothing wrong with renting. There's nothing wrong with renting as long as you're smart about it. As long as you're not putting such a massive amount of money towards your rent that you can't invest money for your future. So yeah, when you're renting, be smart about it. Try to ensure that you, know, you don't pay, you don't, you don't excessively pay uh, money in rent so that you can allocate that money towards an appreciating asset. Last topic, um, cryptocurrencies and cannabis market, sort of a, a two part one. Uh, two very, very hot topics in the media. Uh, I got my one other friend, Aditya. Um, he he loves cryptocurrency. He's all of a sudden become like a cryptocurrency expert in like two weeks. Maybe he took a course or something. Um, what are your thoughts on those two uh, markets? Well, for cryptocurrency, I wouldn't invest anything that you couldn't afford to lose. And I say lose everything. Um, because it has no underlying value. It's based on you know, realistically, it's based on what we could call the greater fool theory. Because as an entity of exchange, it's just an electronic money transfer. And so it doesn't really do anything that we don't already have. So it doesn't provide any, really any extra utility. It certainly doesn't provide extra utility that would justify rising price level of 50% or 100% or 200%. So anything that rises like that, but doesn't have underlying value to support that could theoretically go to zero. So I'm going to give you an example with a stock. Let's take, uh, let's take Pfizer. Pfizer is in everyone's mind because Pfizer was one of those first companies that, um, that came out with the vaccine. So let's assume that Pfizer finds a cure for cancer. And this is huge, right? This is probably the biggest, would be the biggest medical breakthrough of all time. There's a drug that can cure all cancers. Awesome. What would happen to Pfizer's stock? Well, this would excite so many people, and that stock would go through the roof, and it might continue to rise year after year after year, four years in, five years in, six years in. Pfizer's up another 180% this year. Everybody's got to get on board with Pfizer. However, what would happen if the costs of production for that cancer drug or equal to the revenue being generated, such that, or, or in excess of it, such that 
Pfizer's business earnings were not rising, but its stock price was rising like crazy. Well, I can tell you what would happen. The average person would be, would be killing themselves to get into Pfizer because Pfizer went up 100%. It's got a cure for cancer. There isn't a better story than that. Pfizer's up 1,000%, and they've got a cure for cancer. They're curing bone cancer, breast cancer, mm. brain cancer. Everybody's got to buy Pfizer. That would happen, and the price would continue to rise for several years. But if the underlying business earnings of Pfizer couldn't justify that, the stock would eventually crash and crash hard. So I'm not saying that's what's going to happen with the cryptocurrencies, but I'm saying it's a very strong likelihood that it could happen. And so for that reason, it's best, I believe, to only put money into it that you can afford to lose. What you described sort of sounds very eerily similar to the cannabis industry. <laughs> um, <laughs> right uh when when cannabis was legalized was it back in 2016 or whatnot a lot of people including myself you know started putting money into that market thinking you know what this is going to be hot this is going to be hot there's there's a lot of excitement behind it uh but there were a lot of issues with supply chain with distribution heck even with, with retail there's not enough stores out there to uh to get this stuff here with your hands on and as a result um you know earnings uh, didn't re kind of really match the the excitement, and you really kind of saw that bubble. I don't I don't want to say burst, but it really fizzled off. I, I I could tell you that I only broke even after three or four years in the cannabis market, and didn't really make any returns uh, from that for similar reasons that you kind of described with your example right there. Yeah, I call it the dog and the leash phenomenon, right? Um, so if you have a long leash with your dog and you're traveling ten miles, um, you're kind of like the the cannabis business owner and the dog is like the stock price but the dog can't cover 10 miles any faster than you can mm -hmm. it can run ahead of you but it has a giant leash and so eventually it has to come back and it can only really cover that 10 miles about as fast as you can and so that's the thing with anything that grabs people's attention and excitement is they end up often overpaying and as a result of that um eventually the, the stock price ends up dropping back until it aligns with the normalized business growth of that entity. Right. Andrew, I think we've got to wrap things up here. There's uh, oh man, we, we've talked about so much. So why don't you tell our listeners, uh, do you have any, any upcoming projects coming up that might be exciting for our listeners and uh, where can people find you online? Well, they can find me at andrewhallam.com. Uh, I'm coming up with a, a new book in January called balance. Ooh. And I'm really, really excited about that because I'm looking at holistic success. Um, holistic su success measured by enough money, uh, strength of relationships, uh, your health, and a sense of purpose. Wow. So these are what I, I define as the quadrants, the four quadrants of success. If, uh, if you want to have a peek at the first chapter, you can sign up at my website at andrewhelm.com. So Immediately, it'll give you access to, for free, the first chapter of Balance. And it'll also make you eligible for my kindness lottery. So once a month, what I do is I, I draw a name from the people who've signed up. And, uh, and I'll tell you in a second why it's the best sign-up in the world. But I draw a name once a month, and uh, I'll, I'll contact the winner. And let's say, Ron, you're the winner this month. I don't say, hey, Ron, I've got a free copy of Millionaire Teacher signed. It's the second edition. You might not have seen that. You, yeah. you read the first one, yeah. first edition. Got a free copy of, uh, of 
Millionaire Teacher Second Edition, I want to send it to one of your friends. Ooh. So you tell me what friend to send it to. And if you want me to put anything personal in the little descriptor as I write, you know, dear whoever your friend is. So um, dear Jake. <laughs> yeah, dear Jake. So once yeah, so once a month I'll do that. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm pretty I'm pretty excited about that. Oh, why is it the best website in the world or the best sign up in the world? I hate signups. I hate that stuff yeah. because people fill my inbox with crap. <laughs> I'm not gonna I'm not gonna and, and, and marketing people say Andrew, you've got to tell people stuff. No, I don't have to tell people <laughs> stuff. They don't want my crap in their inbox. And so what I've got is I'm gonna pull a name out. Um, I'll, I'll announce it on my website who the winner is, and I'll connect with the winner. Mm. And when my book balance comes out, I will use that mail list and I'll just say, Hey, the book balance is out, but I'm not going to bug people. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Balance. Wow. So you're getting into relationship and life counseling now. <laughs> I <laughs> hey, love you know, it. I've, I've been into that. Uh, that's been exciting for me for years. I've been writing about that and researching about that. And yeah. this is the first opportunity I've had to put this into a book. Wow. So you really are about diversification, financial advice, life advice, relationship advice, really diversifying that portfolio. Loving it, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> well, Andrew, thank you so much. This has been such a fun conversation. And I, I think I was saying this to you offline before we were recording. Um, you know, I, I actually heard about Andrew the, for the very first time through my business high school teacher 10 years ago. I got a copy of his book from 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 my business teacher, Mr. DaCosta. And it's, this is kind of a full circle moment for me to, to be able to now interview an author that uh, I really look up to and uh, kind of, kind of uh, started learning a lot about investing from, from his book. So thank you so much for joining on this episode today. We really appreciate all the advice that you provided for all the teachers out there. My pleasure. Thanks so much for the invitation. <laughs> and thank you so much for all of our listeners out there today. Uh, if you enjoyed today's content, of course, follow us on Instagram and on Facebook. And of course, you can hear us every single Monday on Apple's, Spotify, Google, or any other podcast streaming services. We'll see you guys next week. Take care, guys. Woo!